Welcome to the Forward 40 Podcast, where we highlight the experiences of 40 women of color on the rise in the nonprofit and social enterprise sectors. This is an ode to our foremothers, a healing circle of our unique experiences, and a bridge of insight and wisdom across generations. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Forward 40. Very excited to have, as I shared with her, another Texan on the podcast uh, who hails from Houston, Shauna Jefferson, and she is the executive chef owner of Chefs for Seniors in North Houston. So welcome, Shauna. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, I'm so happy to have you, and I was just telling... uh, my fellow board member that I am hungry right now. So, (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness. So what, 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 what a time to actually be speaking to a chef. Um, And you, you have an interesting journey because you are a practicing lawyer as well. So wanted you to just share more about, you know, what inspired you to study and to practice law? And then in terms of like your focus on supporting and advising nonprofit and community development organizations and professionals, what kind of went into into that? Okay. Well, I think what inspired me to practice law, and I, I wish it was something that sounded much more um, altruistic, but uh, when I was in high school, the TV show L.A. Law was very popular. Huh. <laughs> and when I when I saw that TV, I was completely captivated after watching that watching L.A. Law, um, just the the lives of lawyers and 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 watching what they did and everything. And so that is really, uh, I think, what motivated me to begin to look into law as a potential career. Mm-hmm. I think before that, as I look back through like my my childhood you know, memory books or whatever that, and you're supposed to write down, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. I think uh, before then, I I, I know teacher was one of them. And I think journalist was one of them because I'm an avid reader. Okay. I love, love, love to read. And um, I used to love to write, but being a lawyer has kind of changed that for me in some way. So I'm trying to get, it just, it changes the way you write. And so uh, now I'm trying to really focus on and figure out, okay, how do I write like a normal person again, <laughs> as opposed to writing, writing like a lawyer? And how do I really tap into that creative side of me that I know was there? Uh, it, because I've, I've read some of the things that I used to write when mm-hmm. I was younger from a creative writing perspective. Um so anyway, that is that is kind of what led me to begin to look at law as a as a potential uh, career. And so, as I was when I was in college, I, I was not a pre law major. Mm. Um, I actually was a was a, a liberal arts major and a and a finance major. Huh. But I knew I wanted to go to I knew I wanted to go to law school. And I guess during that time, it was my actually it was my senior year. I was working on my senior thesis, and I wrote my senior thesis on transracial adoption. Mm. And it was from there, and I guess that was really my first exposure to this whole idea of social work and juvenile law and adoption and things like that. 
And that is really where I began to really get the idea of, okay, maybe I want to be a lawyer, but I want to do something more altruistic. Mm. So I um, actually took a break. I worked for three years before starting law school. And even then things changed because I was, the plan was, I was in Atlanta at the time and the plan was to move back to Texas Mm. and go to law school. And I was, like I said, I've been working for three years and I got used to having a job, having a steady paycheck. I started a 401k. I started looking at buying a home. And mm-hmm. so I realized that, okay, you know, moving back to Texas and giving all this up was just not um, <laughs> the best idea at the time. I, and so what I did is I did some research as I was taking the LSAT and I found out about Georgia state, which mm. is a great, great law school in downtown Atlanta. And they actually have a part-time program, a very oh, good okay. part-time program. And so I made the decision just to, um, to apply to Georgia state. That's the only law school I applied to. Oh, I wow. took my LSAT. I, I made, I made the score on my LSAT, which was exactly what I needed to make to get into Georgia state. I applied and so I actually went to law school part-time while working full-time at AT&T. Wow. And, That's amazing. Uh, fortunately, yeah, unfortunately, it, it, I was very blessed to work in a department where we could telecommute and we had flex hours and things like that. So I, I don't honestly, if I hadn't have had that mm-hmm, work mm-hmm. Um, arrangement, I don't think I could have done it. I, mm. I, honestly, I honestly don't. So I was very blessed. And so uh, when I was in law school, I really came up with this idea or I I was drawn to wanting to do something good as a lawyer, not wanting to. I knew I didn't want to be a litigator Mm, and I thought about doing corporate law for a while. Mm -hmm. And um, and and then I really, really, really was focused on juvenile law. Mm. And and for a while, um, in fact, the entire time I was in law school, I thought I wanted to be, I wanted to, thought I wanted to be a juvenile court judge. Mm. And um, actually what changed that was, I think everybody remembers, you remember Judge Hatchett, Judge yes. Linda Hatchett, yes. she had on show. Well, <laughs> then she, back then, and I guess I'm dating myself, back then, this was before her show. Mm. She was actually the juvenile court judge in Fulton County, Georgia. Oh, wow. And I actually had an opportunity to meet her. Mm -hmm. And she was an inspiration to me, though, because she was a corporate attorney with Delta Airlines. And she left Delta Airlines to become a juvenile court judge. So she gave up a very lucrative career in corporate law to become a juvenile court judge. Mm -hmm. And um, I met her because I actually signed up for to volunteer for a program that they have in the entire state of Georgia. So citizen panel review. And Mm -hmm. in Fulton County, what you do is you actually go through two or three days of training. And that's where I met her, where you learn all about the foster care system, the juvenile law system. And what the panels do is we would meet um, once a month Mm -hmm. and we actually kind of had a a docket like a, like a a, a judge would have. And we would actually review the cases of uh, kids who were in foster care. We would meet them we would talk to their social workers. If the parents were available, we would talk to them. And then we would make recommendations to the juvenile court judges. And they really, really rely on these citizen panels because we are the, the citizen panels. We are the people who are actually interfacing directly with everyone involved in the case. And it really helps the juvenile court judges to make better informed decisions about children. Okay. Well, in the, in the process of doing that, and I really, really looked at the sort of decisions that had to be made, mm-hmm. you know, really 
Solomon split the baby decisions mm. on a daily, daily basis. And I was honest with myself and I said, can I really do this job and not bring it home with me? Mm. And the answer was, answer for me was no. Mm. I mean, I remember sitting in on a, on a, on a, a, a case where this was a 13 year old girl and she had never been to school. Her Wait, parents had ne- never? never sent her to Never. She had never set foot in a schoolroom. And that's why they were in court, because the truant officer finally caught up with them and they were in court being charged with, you know, juvenile, juvenile neglect. And uh, there are all these things. But I sat there and I said, oh, my gosh, I I said, I couldn't do this. I I just I just know I'm not wired to do this every day. I (laughs) thought I was strong enough, but nope, not strong enough. So what I did instead is I continue to do volunteer. So actually, the citizen panel review, I started that. Uh, I think at the end of my law school tenure, and I continued to do that the entire time I worked as a lawyer in Atlanta. Mm. And I actually did go to work for a firm where I felt like I was still doing good work. Okay, um, okay. I, I actually worked in a in a group where we actually supported municipal bond transactions. Mm. So, and we use municipal bonds to do so many good things in the community: build bridges, mm-hmm. build, um, help nonprofits. Uh, water, utilities, I mean, everything that, that everything good that goes on in a city or a mm-hmm. town or a state is funded by municipal bonds. So I did that while I continued to do my, my volunteer work on the panel review. So okay. I felt like I had a pretty good mix there. Okay. And um, so that's a long, that's a long answer to your question, but that is actually how I ended up becoming a lawyer and making the decisions that I made for, for my career path. Well, thank you for sharing um, that full reflection. And I have two follow-ups. You said that Mm -hmm. you're an avid reader. So do you prefer um, hard copy books or are you digital? That's question number one. And then question number two, or I guess comment, I just want to reiterate um, that you said, Could, can I bring this home with me? And if the answer is no, then that's not what I want to do. Like, I mean, that is such a very keen question to ask oneself uh, in terms of just like the nature of the work. So I commend you for that. So I just wanted to like raise that that question again uh, for the listeners. Like, is this something that I can take home with me? Um, and if you, I guess, are bringing it home, um, is that the space for that work? Is that work intended to be at home. Um, so I guess to the point of your books, are you hard copy or digital? <laughs> Both. <laughs> I, I have. And in fact, you know, I'd mentioned to you that I'm in the midst of, of moving mm-hmm. and most of my boxes, most of the stuff I have currently where I am and in storage, it's either books or kitchen stuff. <laughs> oh my goodness. So that, that, that gives you an idea about, you know, what, what Shauna, what Shauna yes, collects. And yes. so I actually bought my first Kindle. It took me a while, but I bought my first Kindle. Uh, I guess when they, it was, I guess they came out about 10 years ago. So I actually have a second gen and I still have it. I found it when I was trying <laughs> to move actually the, the second generation Kindle that, um, used to run over that whisper sink or whatever. <laughs> this was before they even made them with Wi-Fi. And so I, and I did that. I had to do it because I was running out of space for mm. paper books. But what I also found is that I still 
feel like my paper book yes. there's certain things yes, um, I do too. Business, business books spiritual books yes it's, nonfiction books, yes. I don't buy those in digital form. I still buy those in book form because I want to feel the paper. I want to yes. mark. I want to make notes. Oh goodness, I want to yes. use my little post-it flag. Yes. And so <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't use, I don't buy those in digital form. Yeah. Most nonfiction I do buy in digital form. And okay. the scary thing is though, I'm still buying paper books, but my, my Kindle probably has I know over 2,000 books on it which is Are a you shame serious? because sometimes I'm serious I'll go to buy a book I'll come across it a, a book and I'll say oh this sounds really good I think I'll buy it it's on sale I'll go to buy it and it, Amazon will tell me you purchased this book on July 15, 2010 I said, oh well I guess I need to go and find it so that is the bad part about oh that I goodness. found about digital e-readers is it's out of sight, out of mind. Right. Whereas with your paper, with my paper books, I can see it. So, yes. um, yeah, I'm both. <laughs> so I just, thank you for sharing that. Like I just recently, um, I was listening to a sample of a book, um, just an audio and I was like, oh, okay. I can kind of get the feel of it. But then I also still purchased the, you know, the paperback version because I, there, there is something about the pages of, and you feel connected, especially depending on the genre. Um, you want to be able to jot down notes and refer back mm-hmm. to it and just kind of like have your own personal catalog. And similar to you, um, I still have boxes, like several bins of books, um, some that I have read, others that I walk into a bookstore and you see one and then you see another and then you see another and then mm-hmm. you just accumulate, <laughs> you accumulate the books and you tell yourself one day you're going to read them. And of course I, I will one day. Um, but yeah, that's also something that I, I treasure um, very dearly books and, and reading. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um so just shifting a, a little bit, but then also just like in the vein of um, your pivot from, you know, full-time lawyer to now um, being a chef, um, there are a number of people I actually had to stop watching the news, um, just listening mm-hmm. to the reports of just like the millions of people uh, that are being impacted either because they're losing their jobs um, or can't find uh, other forms of you know work right now, mm-hmm. and they're being shaken financially um, as a as a result of the pandemic. And when we spoke before, you you shared that it was like close to like three years ago um, that you left a six figure job <laughs> to move back mm-hmm. to to Houston and. That can be a challenge for a lot of people who see that steady paycheck as uh, uh, there's no other way to put it, but like that's their God. Right. Um, And they see it as something that is stable and constant. And right now what we are seeing different from, um, I would say, like the recession of 2008, 2009 is this is a free for all. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, there's other layers that are associated with, with what's going on. So what was the biggest draw for you to say, this isn't it for me anymore? Um, especially to walk away from a six figure, what a lot of people um, say, like, really, 
um, like, are you crazy? And um, did you also experience um, that internal conflict of like questioning yourself about your qualification or competency to take that leap beyond the traditional structure of employment? Okay. So I'm an introvert. So let me preface this with I'm an introvert. (laughs) And so I take a lot of time in making decisions. Mm. I do not do well with making decisions at the spur of the moment. (laughs) I'm working on being more spontaneous. (laughs) So it's actually that whole journey in leaving the my leaving law and doing something else that actually I finished law school in 2001 hmm. by 2005 I knew that okay I want to do something different with this um I didn't wasn't sure if it was leaving the law or or changing things and actually I did make a shift I moved from Atlanta to Savannah mm. completely changed my life the pace of life um continued practicing law uh changed my practice area of law and um did a lot of wonderful things and while I was there but I would take the bus um to work into the city I commuted into the city from the suburbs and okay. Um, I started reading books in 2005 on, you know, finding your purpose. Mm. Um, one of my favorite books that really changed my perspective on things is I came across a book called God is my CEO. Ooh, girl, a, girl, <laughs> do you know that book? <laughs> That's what I say. I haven't read the book yet. though. <laughs> oh my gosh. There is a book. And, and I was, I, I had never heard that before. And I was like, huh? What do you mean God is my CEO? Oh, yes. And I read it, and it was about all of these all of these people who were presidents. Most of them were not entrepreneurs. They were actually presidents of corporations, so they were still in corporate America. But it was all about how they allowed, they surrendered and allowed their faith yes. to dictate their journey in corporate America. Mm. And I mean, it was life-changing for me. And I realized, I was like, wow, I don't have to separate my faith from what I do for a living mm-hmm. because the partner I was working for at the law firm at time, I just remember telling him one time that uh, when I was telling him, basically I didn't want to be on partner track and he looked at me like I had two heads and he <laughs> said, and I said, I want to do something that's fulfilling. And he looked at me like I was crazy. He was like, huh? <laughs> what do you call fulfilling? And at that point I knew, I said, okay, I got to change firms if nothing else, because this is just, we're not, we don't share the same values. Mm-hmm. He's a great guy, but, for him, it was just where our lives were on different paths. And so I took that bus. Uh, and so in the two years from 2005 until I moved to, actually, I did make that shift to Savannah that same year. But I would read books on the bus on finding your purpose, mm. how, to, how to combine your, your career, how to have a fulfilling career, how to, how, to, how, to, how to figure out what should you be doing with your life. Mm. And so... And I left my job in 2012. So that's, that was a seven-year journey. So it wasn't wow. one of those things. So by the mm-hmm. time I made that decision, mm-hmm. oh, it was, it was made. I had done, I had talked to career coaches. I had taken career profile tests. I, you know, right before I left, I worked with a career coach to kind of help me make that final leap Okay. Um, and, and help with some mindset things. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I made that leap, I was, I was ready. And to be honest with you, from a professional perspective, I never looked back. I still have it. Now, 
from a personal perspective, yes, I, I'm a, I must honestly say I do miss the life that I had in Savannah. I miss the pace of living in a smaller mm-hmm. town. I miss the the um, the two degrees of separation as opposed to the six or really eight degrees of separation that you have in a big city. Mm-hmm. So there are certain things I miss about that. But from a career perspective, no, I have no I have no regrets, no regrets whatsoever. Um, and the other thing is taking seven years to make a decision like that. Mm-hmm. I was already I was very good with um, investing my money and saving my money. I did this, I did something that the the expert said not to do, but it worked in my favor. Is I didn't put all of my money into retirement. I would save a certain amount in retirement and a certain percentage I would put in what I call my rainy day fund. Mm. And at the time, I didn't know what that rainy day fund was for. It was just my long term rainy day fund, mm. and it would go straight from my paycheck into into those into a money market account. So mm. I would make interest on it. Okay. So when I left. When I left my job, I had $42,000 in that account. Wow. Wow. So um, I had a cushion. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. I I had a cushion. And so it makes it a lot easier to make those, what appears to some people to be a drastic life change. It makes it a lot easier to make those decisions when you do have a nest egg to fall back on. So the one thing I would say to people is, you know, set aside money, you know, so that you have at least um, 12, I say 12 to 18 months of expenses set Mm -hmm. aside. So Mm -hmm. if you reach that point in your life where you're just like, okay, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. or And you know what you want to do, or you realize I can't do this anymore. And you don't know what you want to do. At least you have that, that cushion there. So you're not worrying about, okay, how am I going to pay the bill? Yes. 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 Wow. Oh, so many gems in that. Um, I mean, starting from just, and I mean, seven number of completion, right? Like it. so it took right. you, <laughs> you know, seven, <laughs> seven years to make that exit. And throughout that process, you were being very reflective and very intentional about uh, what you were pouring into yourself uh, to feel empowered and to shift your mindset around it. And then also you were being active, uh, in investing like financially in the someday could be (laughs) this rain, Mm -hmm. this rainy day. Um, and it actually worked for your benefit. That, that is great. That's very powerful. And, um, I, I'm, I'm taking notes. Um, and I definitely hope others will as well. Um, so, you know, like with this shift, um, forward for you and now you are leading in the restaurant space you know I've been feeling nostalgic just about the experience of being at a restaurant um and it's unfortunately never going to be what it was uh as as we know it now and Mm -hmm. you grew up in the restaurant industry and now it's a part of your work um you shared that you know, there was a moment where you said this might be a good time to go to culinary school, a dream that I had. So can you tell us more about that love for culinary arts and how you managed school and work? Because apparently you were able to manage work and part time <laughs> law school. So how did how did you make the culinary school <laughs> work for you? Um, and also just kind of like your your love 
for the for the field? Mm-hmm. So once again, I was very blessed to have a flexible day job mm. that allowed me to go to culinary school. Um, at the time, I was actually back in the family business, helping my dad manage his restaurant. And so when you're the when you're the boss, it makes it easier. Well, easier and harder, just mm-hmm. depending on what yeah. happens. Yeah. Uh, but you you have a little more control over your over your over your schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that enabled me because I was basically kind of running my running running the family business along with him. That really enabled me and gave me the flexibility that I needed to. Uh, go to class at night or even take some classes during the day. Mm. I would just move my schedule around and, 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 and schedule employees such that I would have coverage or I would tell my, tell my dad, like, okay, you know, daddy, I need to be here or there, or I have to take this class at this time, this semester. Um, you know, is it okay? Do you have my back? And, you know, I will, you know, work later. Or do mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, he and I, he supported me in it. And we really, you know, we, we worked, he supported me in it. We worked That's together. Right. Although I think in his mind, he felt like, I don't know why you're going to culinary <laughs> school. You don't, you really don't need that. You know, you do know, you know, you know, everything that you're learning, which mm-hmm. wasn't, which really wasn't the case. And in, in some cases it wasn't, in some cases it wasn't, but mm-hmm. he did support me in 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 my dream to do that and the the way that that actually came about is while i lived in while i lived in savannah mm-hmm. i befriended a a chef called his name is chef joe randall and actually he is the coolest person ever and mm-hmm. actually his i think his skillet and his apron are actually in the smithsonian the african-american museum and the smithsonian really? institute along with um he, Leah Chase, and um, Patrick Clark are three very influential and well-known African-American chefs that mm-hmm. have shaped the lives and careers of African-American chefs throughout the years. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, but he's so humble. You really don't, you really don't know. Um, mm-hmm. You really don't know. I remember when Sylvia, who owned Sylvia's in New York, died. Mm-hmm. He, they, his, the family asked him to come and speak at the funeral. And so he was just nonchalant. Oh, I have to drive up to New York because he doesn't fly. To drive up to New York, you know, you heard that, you know, Sylvia died. And so I, you know, I'm going up there. And then he said to me, and I think while I'm up there, I'm going to, you know, see if I can talk, see if I can meet up with Marcus. I haven't talked to him for a while. Mm-hmm. And I said, Marcus? I said, Chef, do you mean Marcus Samuelson? He's like, well, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, you know Marcus Samuelson? And at that time, Marcus had just come out with his um, book, Yes, Chef. Mm-hmm. And so I just, you know, made a passing comment, didn't ever think it would happen. Passing comment saying, well, you know, if you meet up with him, if you can get him to autograph a book for me, that'd be great. He came back and he handed me an autograph wow. copy of Yes, Chef. Wow. Um, wow. But as he had this little cooking school where he would teach, he would, you could sign up and you'd pay out $70. And he had a theme every night. It was mm-hmm. always Southern cooking four course meal mm. you sit there and you have the recipes there and so you watch him it's about there's space for about 11 people he got his liquor license eventually so he could serve wine mm-hmm. and you'd watch him prepare this meal and you could ask him questions and everything and the first time i did it it was his gumbo class mm. and i'm sitting there oh good night girl other people. <laughs> it was it was so good and i'm there with other people mm. my age you know we're in our all everybody's in their you know late 20s early 30s and I'm the only one sitting there taking notes and asking questions and stuff. And 
And he, he finally he stopped giving me. He says, "Who are you? Where did you come from?" <laughs> <laughs> I explained to him, you know, how I grown up in the restaurant restaurant business, and my dad still owns a restaurant in restaurant a restaurant in Texas, and 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 he his wife was his sous chef. So she would do the dishes and put out the plates and everything. So it was, it was a family, it was a family business. And so he and his wife adopted me. And so I, you know, I would go to his classes. I'd take them periodically. I took a 12 week intensive course from him. And that's where I learned all of the basics. I learned how to use a knife. I learned how to sharpen, Mm. um, sharpen a knife. Even though I grew up in the restaurant business, Mm -hmm. it was barbecue. So it was a little different. Um, I learned how to make socks. I learned how to make uh, salad dressings from scratch. Everything that you would learn in your first year basic food mm-hmm. prep course, mm-hmm. I learned from him in that class. Wow. And I was hooked. And I just said, you know, one day, it's on my bucket list. One day, I want to go to culinary school. Because I was that person who I would cook five-course meals and then just invite my friends over for dinner. Mm. Just because. Mm. Um, so making that shift here and you know only only this is something that only god can do yes you're trying to change the trajectory of your life and change it in ways that you never ever would 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 think yeah and you know that's 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 what happened and and you know so i ended up coming here had no plans of going to culinary school when i moved back home i mean my plan was to be a legal recruiter for a while Mm. i figured out what i wanted to do I lasted a year and I knew I hated it. So I had to beg and beg and plead with my dad, please, please, please let me learn the restaurant business. Not that I wanted to run a restaurant, but I, my goal was always to learn how to market and distribute his barbecue sauce and his sausage. Okay. And, you know, from there I ended up in culinary school. And then from there I ended up um, owning a franchise called chefs for seniors. So you just never know in life. Yes. Wow. 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 And, um, the fact that, you know, you were able to be cultivated in this very tailored way and then, you know, that propelled you further to where you are right now, um, as chef franchise owner. I mean, that's, that's just amazing. And, um, so you're, you're still in the for those that are listening, like you're still in the business of doing well and doing good. And right now, you know, the population is focused on seniors. So why the senior population in particular and um, any like fond memories that you've uh, had thus far in in your experience with being um, the, the owner and executive chef? Well, uh, well, yes. So why seniors? Okay. So that's an interesting question because once again, that has to be a God thing. Because if you notice in, in what we've talked about, my background has always been with kids. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it was so funny. I was joking with my sister by, cause she, I used to always joke with her. She's a nurse and she's always loved old people. (laughs) I used to joke with her and say, you love, I love young people. You love old people. <laughs> so she was always the old people person. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that in the most loving way. Uh-huh. Um, she was the one and, and still is wants to, you know, do things with gerontology and things like that. And me, not, not me, not so much younger spectrum, but 
a lot of my friends to this day, a lot of my closest friends have always been people who are older than me. I've, I've just always trended to, trended towards older friends. So, mm. in fact, one of my oldest friends she'll turn eighty six this month, what? and we met we we met on a on a South American cruise. She's from Pittsburgh, and um, I was in Atlanta at the time. And we met on the cruise and we, there was a whole group of them. They were all in their 60s and 70s traveling together and they adopted me. And so I kept in touch with all of them for, you know, 19 years. And unfortunately they've all passed away except for um, two of them, Ellie and I think Dorothy's in North Carolina with her, with her daughter. But Ellie and I, um, I finally went to visit her a couple of years ago up in Pittsburgh and met her boyfriend Booney, who's ninety-two, <laughs> and still still independent. <laughs> and just, you know, oh, so I, I when I thought about, it, you know, I've always trended older with with my friends and have always uh, was very close to my grandmother who died at yes. she's almost hundred and three when she died. Wow. And and so oh, it was just that gosh. kind of that transition of and that combination of okay, um, this is a way to help a population mm-hmm. that is needs it and is not valued, mm-hmm. um, not yeah. valued as much as they should be. And I can combine that with my love of cooking. I knew I didn't want to run a restaurant. I knew I didn't want to do catering. I knew I liked cooking. And the one thing I did know is I wanted to do something where I could cook in someone's home and mm-hmm. do it, like being a personal chef. Mm-hmm. And it was the perfect, it was, the, you know, it was just the perfect marriage. And so I, I, you know, I have this wonderful group of clients. In fact, that first, the first, probably the first two months, mm-hmm. all the clients that hired me, probably the first two or three months of my business, I still cook for all of them except for one. And wow. that one funny story is he was my pediatrician. So wow. for a while, I cooked for my former pediatrician and his wife. And he's 85 years old and still working, still wow. goes into, um, now since the coronavirus, I don't know what Dr. Klein is doing. I've sent him a Father's Day card and, you know, hopefully ask him, hopefully you're doing well and you're staying safe. Mm-hmm. He was going into his practice at Texas Children every day at 85, still, wow. still going at it. Um, so, I, you know, I have, I, you know, my, my first client, my oldest and she's my oldest client. She and her husband are 92. She's mm. a retired opera singer and she gives singing. She, well, up until the pandemic, she was giving singing lessons in her home. Mm. And so I, and uh, she would give lessons on Tuesday afternoons when I cook for her. Mm. So I would have the great experience of being in the kitchen cooking. Although one time she told me you, you make too much noise. So I, we worked <laughs> out a way to close the door and, she would give singing lessons and she has a nonprofit that actually I um, have, a, I've done a giveaways for the nonprofit silent auction mm-hmm. items for the nonprofit to help her raise money and, you know, have, have, have done some things for her there. Um, so she's, and she's, I call her my diva cause she is, but she is <laughs> Lois, Lois Alba. I, I love her. I, 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 just, I just love her. She's just awesome. Um, and then I have uh, Dick and Kathy, who they call me their oldest daughter because I'm a couple of months or a few months older than their oldest daughter. Hmm. Um, Dick and um, Kathy and her daughter went out, I went on vacation for a week. And this was last, this is about a year ago, last June. Hmm. And uh, I arrived at Dick's home to cook for him. And he had gone out, gone out to water the plants that morning. And mind you, this is two o'clock when I arrived. 
Mm-hmm. He fell, tripped oh, wow. and fell, and collapsed and couldn't get up. So oh, he had been out on that patio all all day. And I called nine one one. The paramedics came. I tracked down Kathy and her daughter. They were in Austin, and um, his son in law met him at the hospital. And that really, really kind of changed the trajectory of our relationship. Mm. It's like, you know, he to this day, he'll say, I've never been so happy to see someone. And he said that he'll tell you, he says, I, I knew Shauna was coming and that's what helped me to mm. hang on. Wow. Um, and wow. once again, it, it was a God thing because he fell on Thursday. What if he'd fallen on Wednesday or on yeah. Tuesday? I wow. don't come on those days. And uh, so he's doing great. Um, he's lost 45 pounds since I've been cooking for him. Mm. And um, just, just uh, uh, amazing. So, uh, yeah, I just have lots of different little stories about, about my clients and, and how I got them and, and the ones that are still with me, you know, what they're, what they're still doing. And the ones that aren't still with me, I do try and, you know, check on them periodically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. send them cards and, and, and see how they're doing. That is so, so sweet. Uh, And like for me, like even though I've worked in the space of education and, you know, traditional education spaces, non-traditional, and it has been primarily like a youth population, I have always been drawn to those that have come before me all the time, like ever since I was a child. Um, So much so that even amongst my friends, they'll call me like the, the old lady of the bunch. Um, and um, it's partially because I was also raised by my grandparents and just I enjoyed being Mm -hmm. around them like even though they were older they were still cool and fun to me and I enjoyed their Mm -hmm. you know just watching their interactions back and forth Uh, and you are absolutely right like it's a population that um, unless you are you know working with the aging or uh, you're into gerontology, it is um, a population that is overlooked and or forgotten. It's kind of like seen as like the throwaway. Uh, And it's so great that you're able to combine your skills, talents, and your gifts to be of service um, to people like they're 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 still people um they're at a different mm-hmm. point in their life um uh, but there's they're still people and apparently very vibrant um still you know, i mean pre-pandemic um still you know offering opera lessons and going into the office as a pediatrician that in the 80s and 90s i mean that's amazing really amazing yeah and um so i I guess it kind of connects to something else that I learned when, when we spoke previously. So this month is, which was formerly known as Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, is now BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of Color, Mental Health uh, Month. And I wrote a piece on that just to kind of um, bring to light the supports that organizations and companies need to have for uh, the people that work on their behalf, right? And more than likely do more than, um, to be quite frank, um, you know, the, maybe the white executives that are leading the companies or the organizations. And especially in a moment like this, where those that are on the front lines and those that were deemed essential workers, when you start to break down the demographic, uh, primarily people of color and then women of color, it's very, very important to be mindful, overly mindful of what this moment's means for people that are feeling challenged about um, not knowing what 
their next second minute hour is going to be, let alone the next the next month. And you share with me that um, you know the, the elderly community is actually it has like the second highest rate in terms of suicide, which unfortunately with mental health issues, when it goes unaddressed, it manifests into depression and then um, other forms of self self harming. So. Um, would you be able to just like share more about um, how you've personally been impacted by this and how you have been able to champion further uh, beyond just like the work that you you do as a, as a chef to bring light to uh, the issues of the community? Sure, sure. I mean, I I I I wish I didn't know that statistic. Um, and I, I, you know, I say that just because of the way that I learned that statistic. And it's, it's because um, a year ago, actually, July 4th was the, the one year anniversary of the day that my dad committed suicide. And so before then, I had never, you know, suicide was something that never had closely impacted me and definitely not that close. Mm-hmm. And it, so it was, it was just, and the thing that, that bothered me in the, in the, in the days after his death is it, I, I, it just didn't make sense to me because I kept thinking, uh, my dad was 77 and I, I just kept thinking, well, why would you kill yourself at 77? I mean, you've been through the worst of what life has to, mm-hmm. has to, has to hand you. And I'm thinking, you know, if you survived you know, 77 years on this planet, why would you, why would you take your life? I mean, mm-hmm. it does, it just, I mean, because of course, what we hear about in the news is it's always about teenagers, yes. teenage suicide. Teenage, yes. And actually teenagers have the lowest rate of suicide. Mm. And I think the reason why, and I'm not taking anything away from, from that. Let me say this first, because a loss of life to suicide is a loss of life to suicide. Yes. It is tragic. It is something that people the people who are left never get over um, for every person that commits suicide. I think the statistic is that there are six people, minimum wow. of six people who, whose lives are impacted mm, wow. um, by that suicide. So um, it, it's horrible no matter what the age, but for me, I never even, you know, I, I think it, it just was one of those things where I just was like, why, why, why? And so I woke up, two days after my dad died in the middle of the night, I couldn't sleep. And I said, I just need to know why. So I started Googling it. Hmm. And that's where I found the statistics. And that's where it just completely opened my eyes to what the, what the elderly um, have to go through. And once again, it's one of those societal things where a lot of them feel like they are a burden. Hmm. They feel like that, Hmm. that they have no reason to, they have no reason to live. Um, they don't want to be a burden to, to anyone who's, who's left. Uh, for some of them, they are suffering, they are suffering from, from undiagnosed depression. Mm. Uh, the one thing that we found out about my dad is that my dad actually had, um, undiagnosed heart disease and Mm. those who have, um, heart disease, those who have heart disease, uh, depression actually is, is, is something that goes hand in hand with mm, that. Okay. Okay. And mm-hmm. so, um, 
a lot of people, and I just started doing more research on that. And one of the things that doctors recommend is that if you have heart disease, to keep a close eye mm. on depression and don't be afraid to reach out for help. Yes. And yes. so I, we knew my dad was under a lot of stress with mm-hmm. different things with his business and other things that were going on. But um, we didn't know it was that bad. We figured it out the morning, the day before he took his life, that he was actually uh, probably suffering from depression. Mm. And uh, before we could do anything, we don't know what, what triggered him that particular day. We don't mm-hmm. know what happened. But uh, before we could get him some help, it, you know, it was it was it was just too late. So and for those people out there who do have elderly loved ones, just just keep an eye on them. Yes. Listen to what they're saying. If they start talking about being a burden, if they start giving away. Um, now, my dad did not do this, but these are just some things that I have learned in the process. If they start giving away their 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 valuables. Um, just just pay close attention to that. And actually the rate is probably suicide rate is probably higher than is accounted for because mm. a lot of people, what is perceived as, Oh, grandma just took accidentally took too many pills. Mm. No, grandma didn't. A lot of times grandma didn't accidentally take too many pills. Grandma took too many pills on purpose. Mm. Um, mm. So you just really, really, we really have to keep an eye on our, uh, keep an eye on our elderly and mm. really make them feel value. Get them the get them the help get them the help that they, yes. the help that they need, because um, it is an epidemic and especially in men over the age of 65. Mm, wow. Okay. Okay. Wow. And then um, even with that, you know, um, breaking it down in terms of like racial demographics and especially where um, mental health supports um, have been taboo for some time. I mean, granted over the past, you know, decade or so it has been, more normalized to actually um, talk about seeking help and um, feelings or emotions or things that you're 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 troubled with. Um, but that point that you you mentioned um, about elderly men, it makes me just uh, reflect on what that means for black men. Uh, mm-hmm. And. Uh, and I'll say this as a black woman who has, you know, black grandfather, uncles, <laughs> you know, cousins, uh, husband, mm-hmm. uh, yep. what that means where there's not necessarily that representation uh, in people that look like them for them to speak to. Right. Right. Um, yeah. The, just, just the space more generally of, uh, you know, therapists, whether they're psychologists or, you know, just counselors are, they tend to skew towards women. Um, or if they yep. are male, they're, they're white male. So they're just, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you, you bring up a, a great point and something for us to definitely consider, especially, um, in, in this moment where people are even more isolated and, um, yeah. are not as, connected uh to to their loved ones in the way that um they they were before so thank you for for sharing that and also i send my condolences again um i know that uh it never necessarily you you don't necessarily get over it you it's just you you learn over time to to process uh, and, and mm-hmm. come to terms with, with what happened. So, um, thank you so much for sharing, uh, and, and making us aware of, of that. 
Well, yes, that's what I've always, my prayer has always been um, after it happened. If I, if I just ask God, okay, show me, just show me how to, to, to transform this, this tragedy into, into something that's triumphant. Mm, mm-hmm. Yes. And that you are doing <laughs> for sure <laughs> that you are doing. Uh, and I know your, your dad is very, um, very proud of you and happy for you. And I just noticed the, the sevens again, you said he was 77. Um, yeah. so those sevens keep coming up. <laughs> they, they, do. they do. They keep coming up. Um, so I usually, when I connect with the guests and I ask, you know, are you a tea drinker or a coffee drinker? I get, you know, the both, or I get the, oh, I'm a coffee drinker and I, you know, give them a pass and I don't pass judgment. Um, <laughs> but you are a huge tea person. So, um, like myself, uh, cause I do not drink coffee. Um, what are some of your favorite teas? And, um, if you would take one of those teas, like what, what, what dish would you pair with that tea? Oh gosh. Okay. So I'm definitely any form of green tea. Hmm. I, you know, I'm a huge green tea drinker. It's, it's very helpful. First of all, it's very healthy, high in antioxidants. So, um, I drink a, I drink a cup of green tea every day Wow! and not just a little cup of green tea. I mean, I get a nice <laughs> big tumbler of hot green tea every, every, every day. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm a huge green tea drinker. Um, when I went to India, uh, several years ago, I was introduced to chai, and mm. so I love I love chai. Um, I love experimenting with different teas that may have like a chocolate. These are black teas, kind of a chocolate mm. undertone okay. or vo- Um Tea Vana, I was I was heartbroken when they closed. I <laughs> <laughs> I used to love going to Tea Vana and trying the different teas and buying all the different gadgets and and everything. So. Yeah, a huge tea drinker. Um, I guess if I'm not drinking green tea, uh, Celestial Seasonings has a blueberry herbal tea, which I love. And oh. then um, there's also a peach. Um, Bigelow makes a peach tea. And then they also make a peach tea with uh, ginger that's good. Mm, and there's, yes. a, there's another brand that does a, a, a peach tea with turmeric. Mm. That's also, um, that's also peach pretty good. Peach and turmeric? So I'm Yes. Yes. Okay. So it's a way to get your turmeric in too. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Peach and turmeric. So I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, some people are wine connoisseurs. I'm, I, I'm, I'm a tea, <laughs> tea connoisseur. <laughs> so that's, that, that's the, uh, uh, you know, who knows, maybe the next thing I'll do is to figure out how there are people who do this. They're like, um, sommeliers for tea as opposed to, you know, being a sommelier for wine. Maybe I'll, who knows, maybe I'll do that one day, but I may join anyway, you. Yeah. <laughs> That that's what I, I love, and so as far as since I'm usually drinking tea, I'm drinking hot tea in the morning. So it's not that I'm usually pairing it pairing it necessarily with anything because um, I usually drink the tea separate from eating my breakfast. Okay, I just okay. like I, I like to to I like to relish the flavor of my tea. Mm, okay. um, but I will say that sometimes in the in the in the afternoons when I need a when I need a boost, um, an energy boost. What I will do is I will grab um, a handful of wasabi flavored almonds hmm. and some sharp some sharp cheddar cheese hmm. and then some more green tea and okay. actually that combination of the the spicy wasabi with the sharp taste of the cheddar cheese and then the um, 
sweetness and the lemon and the green tea makes it's just a nice little combination okay. and it gives me a great energy boost because almonds actually the protein mm-hmm. and the almonds and the cheese are a great way to get across get over that three three o'clock in the afternoon slump oh my goodness you get that that slump too at three o'clock oh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was just me because i used to work with school so i just thought my brain was saying school's out now so <laughs> no, no 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 you are not alone <laughs> Okay, I'm definitely going to add that on my list. Um, you said wasabi flavored almonds, sharp uh-huh. cheddar, diamond. I think diamond makes them. Okay, yeah. okay. And those, those. Oh gosh, they're the best almonds. Okay, all right. They're soy, soy, soy wasabi. Soy wasabi. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you. Yum yum. Um, so Shauna, I mean, it has just truly been a pleasure. You have, uh shared great wisdom in terms of just like your journey and how you arrived at where you are today, owning a franchise, being an executive chef, and um, also dropping gems on things that we should be aware of more globally as it relates to Mm -hmm. members in our family and also the community. So I truly, truly appreciate you uh, for being one of our 40 and um, being a guest. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And you know that we close with the tea affirmation. So what would your tea affirmation be for our listeners? I think I've seen that. So I'm, I'm, I'm probably, I'm poaching someone else's quote that I, that I saw, but it, I think it relates, it relates a lot to, especially us as women is you, uh, women are like tea bags. You never know how strong they are until you put them in boiling water. Yes, yes, yes. I saw that when I went to a doctor's appointment and I took a picture of that. (laughs) (laughs) I support that one. I support that. And that's a great reminder of when we feel very tested, um, in situations that that's that testing, um, refines us, uh, and where you really, when we are able to see our strength and others can bear witness to it as well. Thank you. I like that one. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. Yeah. So Shauna, how do I think it was an Irma Bombay quote? I'm not sure though. Yeah. I, I think it may have been Irma I have, it, I have it on my phone. Um, like I said, I went to a doctor's appointment and I was like, Ooh, I got to take this. And she was like, what are you taking a picture of? It was my first time meeting with this doctor too. I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking at this yeah, I'm quote. quote on your wall. <laughs> Oh my goodness. How do people stay in touch with you um, or connected to the the work that you're doing with Chefs for Seniors? Okay. They can find me on Facebook. Um, I do have a Chefs for Seniors North Houston Facebook page. Wonderful. Uh, They can find me. They can find me on LinkedIn, actually just under my name, under Shauna, under Shauna Jefferson. Uh, They can go to my website, uh, Chefs for Seniors dot com slash north dash houston okay all right well thank you so much shauna um i wish you all the best with this move and uh it's definitely time to go eat now <laughs> until we connect again sip sis say la share and continue to serve